it's uh, lovely. You, yes, you may be seated. Thanks. Blessing the Lord, worshiping together is uh, great at any time. It's especially good, though, when you've been apart from each other, isn't it? To come back and see faces that we haven't seen in a while and worship together. Yeah, it's a big thing. So we're glad to be here. Glad you're here also. Hey, usually once a month, and we're, we're starting this up again. Haven't done it in a couple of months. Uh, but near the end of the month, usually the fourth Sunday, this is the fifth, we have someone share their testimony, basically sort of a, a little bit of a picture of uh, what's my backstory, uh, where was I born, or what was my family of origin like, how did God save me, and then what have I seen God doing in me and through me since then. And we've had some great testimonies, by the way, in the past, and I would just say I'm particularly encouraged, I think we'll be encouraged by this one this morning, uh, my daughter Bethany Golden, Bethany Halpin Golden is going to share her testimony. I don't know if we should be concerned about this or not, Kath. <laughs> the backstory, I don't know. Uh, no, Bethany, Bethany is one of the most delightful people you'll ever meet. You'll be better off if you get a chance to hear from her, not because she's my daughter, but because she is just a godly gal, so... Anyway, Bethany. <laughs> Good morning. I was born into a Christian home and remember, even at a very young age, that we had daily Bible times together as a family. And my parents spoke to my sisters and I constantly about Christ and that he died for our sins and that he paid our punishment. And at the age of four years old, I asked Christ to be my Savior. And when I was six years old, I wanted to be baptized. So my older sister Rachel and I, were, and Becky Whipperman, were baptized together on a Father's Day. Um, as much as Rachel and I wanted to be baptized, we had a fear of putting our faces in the water. So my mom worked with us for quite a while in the bathtub, putting our faces in so that we would be ready for the, for the day. But I was still afraid on the day and was holding onto my dad's neck so tightly he had to go under the water with me too. As I grew up, my parents helped me make my faith my own. And when my sisters and I learned to read, our reward for that was that we got our own Bible. And I remember being really excited about that and feeling grown up. And it helped me realize too that my faith was my own, that I wasn't writing the coattails of my parents' faith, that I needed to know my Savior. We heard growing up my dad's well-known quote of read your Bible, but we also heard only eat your, read your Bible on the days you eat. And it just helped me realize that that was really important to do. I feel like sometimes people who grow up in Christian homes um, think that they don't have a good testimony because they, weren't, they didn't do anything really horrible or bad before they were saved. But our testimony isn't just Christ saving us, it's also the redeeming work he does in our lives afterwards. I feel like as a child, I grew in my knowledge and love for the Lord, but really feel like my faith blossomed around the age of 12 years old. I started playing volleyball that year, which was a disaster, um, and it did not last long. But I also started developing pain in my left arm. We initially assumed it was just related to volleyball, but it didn't go away, and nothing really helped alleviate it. So I started seeing a doctor who, after a few years of tests, um, that didn't lead to any conclusions, told me and my parents that I had just been lying and I didn't want to practice my violin and there was nothing wrong. So 
So after five years of dealing with chronic pain, we finally got to the right doctor and were told that all my symptoms were classic for a condition called Chiari malformation. And it has to do with not having enough space in your skull for your brain. Um, and because I'd gone undiagnosed for so long, I had nerve damage, which is why I had arm pain and um, pain in my head as well. We were told I needed brain surgery. So at 17 years old, I had my first surgery. I had complications following surgery and had a second surgery a couple days later. A year after my first surgery, none of my symptoms had improved and actually some had worsened. We ended up seeing a specialist in Iowa who told me I had an additional complication and needed another surgery to correct it all. At that appointment, he told me and my parents, if you don't have the surgery, you will die. And it was really sobering to hear because up to that point, no one had informed me or us how serious my medical condition was. But even in the midst of that, I remember not feeling afraid. I felt peace that I could trust God and it was going to be okay. And this was really significant for me. Fear has always been something I've struggled with in my life. And God was just so gracious in reminding me he was with me and giving me a peace that I could trust him. My third surgery was successful in correcting both the problems, but the nerve damage was permanent, and now it affected both my arms. I still deal with pain on a daily basis, and some days the pain is overwhelming both physically and emotionally. There are days it greatly limits what I'm able to do, and I have struggled with feeling sorry for myself at times, just wondering why God allowed it or why it's continued. Um, but I know that he is good, and I know he does use all things for my good and for his glory. And so when I remember that, I'm thankful for my pain because it does bring me closer to the Lord. It reminds me that I'm not supposed to be reliant on myself and my own abilities, but I'm supposed to continually go to the Lord for my strength. Dealing with pain has, fo has forced me to slow down, to put aside my Martha-like tendencies, and instead see what Christ wants to show me. And even what he wants to teach my children through this. It's an opportunity for me to teach them about God's goodness and that he cares for our needs. And that he knows what it's like to suffer and he's with us in our suffering. He never leaves us. He is trustworthy and he gives us grace and strength when we need it. My husband and I have been married for six years and we've been blessed with three children. Through marriage and parenting, I have seen God smooth away some of my rough edges, and I've seen him parent me as I parent my children. My mother-in-law was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Excuse me. About three years ago. And this past March 15th, the Lord called her home. Even my prayer for her had been that she'd finish her race well and bring glory to the Lord. But in praying for her, I've reflected on myself too, because none of us know when the Lord will call us home and when we'll die. And I want to run my race well of life and of faith so that when I stand before the Lord, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I want to choose joy instead of despair and trust instead of stress, rest instead of busyness, and grace instead of anger. Music has always been a part of my life, and I've been blessed and encouraged over the years by various songs 
But I wanted to share just a few lyrics by um, a Mercy Me called Even If. It says, you've been faithful, you've been good all my days. Jesus, I will cling to you come what may, because I know you're able, I know you can. I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Thank you. I should uh, share also something from Bethany's baptism, which she left out, which so, you know, when you get baptized, uh, part of your testimony, either you share it or, or someone else shares it for you. And uh, part of Bethany's testimony was that she wanted to grow up to be a mother, which she's done, named Alice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened to Alice, but thank you. Ah, uh, thanks, Bethany. Yeah, I, you know, I tend to forget. Uh, you you go through life. I for, I tend to forget about Bethany's surgeries. You know, only in a certain situation do you call to mind. You know, what's what's gone on? What the past is there like? That was uh, was an interesting time. It was a challenge challenging time. So I didn't know Bethany was going to bring up a finishing well. So, but let me tell you about the Mexico Olympics in the summer of 1968. Very memorable for me. Who else in here is old enough to remember the Olympics of 1968? Yeah. Some of you are lying because your hand's not up. I know. <laughs> I, I was 11, and I still remember them. But let me tell you why they're memorable for me for a few reasons. Uh, memorable tragically, some of you will know this, may be the first thing that comes to your mind. And we go through this every week. Thank you. Do you guys remember why it was tragic? Kansas' own Jim Ryan, world record holder at the time in the 1,500 meters, was outsmarted and outrun by the Kenyans. Kip Kano beat Ryan by almost two seconds in the 1,500 meters. And then also glorious, this one, 68 Olympics in Mexico were pretty spectacular for a couple of reasons. That's Bob Beeman. And Bob Beeman sailed in the long jump, American Bob Beeman, 29 feet, two and a half inches. He broke the Olympic and world record at that time by almost two feet. If you watch the video, they were giving this in meters. And Beeman doesn't know how far, he's just known this was a great jump, but he has no idea how far it is because it says something like 8.91 meters. He has no idea. And they finally tell him in feet and inches what he'd done. And no kidding, he falls out on the track. He has almost a nervous breakdown. And that record stood for almost 30 years when Mike Powell, another American, beat it by a couple of inches. So you got tragedy, you got glory. But aside from that, and, and where we're headed this morning is to this guy that you, you probably have no idea, this skinny little African guy, right? Who is he and, and why is he up there? Well, this is John Stephen Aquari, and I'm just going to read to you his story this is from online. Uh, his, his race is famous not because he won, but list, listen to this telling of his story. It says, while competing in the marathon in Mexico City, John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania 
cramped up due to the high altitude of the city. It was also a very hot day. He had not trained at such an altitude back in his country at the 19-kilometer uh, point, a little less than 12 miles, so he's less than halfway through the marathon of 26.2 miles. At that point, there was jockeying for position between runners, and he was hit. He fell badly, wounding his knee and dislocating that joint, plus his shoulder hit hard against the pavement. He, however, continued running, and running's generous. He is hobbling. If you watch the video, you can find this online, of course, on YouTube. He's hobbling, he's walking, he's limping, uh, continued running, finishing last among the 57 competitors who completed the race. So 57 completed at 75 had started. The winner of the marathon, Mamo Wolde of Ethiopia, finished in 2 hours and 20 minutes. Ankwari finished in 3 hours and 25 minutes when there were only a few thousand people left in the stadium and the sun had set, and again, you can see the video online, he was running in the dark in the streets of Mexico City to finish the race. A television crew was sent out from the medal ceremony. The medal award for this event has already taken place when he's coming into the stadium. Crew was sent out from the medal ceremony when word was received that there was one more runner about to finish. He finally crossed the finish line. A cheer came up from the small crowd. When interviewed later and asked why he continued running, he said, my country, and this is why he's famous, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. So people forget the guy who won the event. They remember Ankwari for that reason, that he finished, simply because he finished, not because of where he placed, but it said the greatest last place finish in Olympic history was his finish. And he's still an inspiration to people around the world today. And that leads to the main point, which Bethany's already alluded to. Uh, faithfulness in the image of Christ requires finishing well. So we'll talk about life this morning as a race. It's a marathon. We'll see this in the biblical imagery we look at. You know, we're in the series, which I'll get to in a minute. But the main point we want to go away from this morning is faithfulness requires finishing. That's one thing. But also finishing well. Uh, what does it look like for you and I to run the race of life and to not only finish, finish in faith, but to finish well? And you know, if you walk with the Lord any time at all, your energy level and mine, our focus, our faithfulness, it ebbs and flows. You might go through times and you think, man, I'm doing great. Somebody asks you, how are you doing spiritually? I'm doing great. You know, and they ask you at another time and you're like, I'm terrible. You know, it's terrible. It ebbs and flows. But really the question is, are we in it for the long haul? When we fall down, do we get back up? When our energies drain and maybe we take a, take a break and we sit down are we poised to get back up to continue in the race of life? Faith, related to faith. And with that, I want to mention the epistle to the Hebrews because it speaks. We'll go from there into the main text. But Hebrews is written to convince Jewish believers who were tempted in their day, particularly because of persecution, to fall away from faith in Christ. It was to give up the race of life, the race of faith. Persecution was going on. So Hebrews was written to convince them of two primary points. The first leads to the second. The first is this. Jesus is better than, he's the substance, he's the fulfillment of all the types and shadows 
of the Old Testament, of the law of Moses, of the sacrificial system. You know, he's the better covenant, better priest, better offering, all of those things. So the writer's telling them, as a Jew, you have nothing to go back to because Christ is the fulfillment. Because that's the case, the writer says, we must persevere to finish the race of life in faith. You've got to persevere in your faith in Christ. Don't give up your faith. That's the theme. So listen to this from Hebrews 10, 23, and then 36. He says here, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold on to your confession of faith in Christ. Don't let go. You know, keep your grip. My fingers are slipping. That's okay. I'm holding on. Verse 36 says, you have need of endurance. The whole thing is predicated on life's a long race course. And you got to keep going, and it requires perseverance and endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This theme of reward for faithfulness and completing your race of life is dominant in Hebrews. And that gets into chapter 12. This is one of the better-known passages in Hebrews. Starting at verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... These would be the faithful saints that have already been called out in chapter 11. They finished the race of life in faith. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The thought is like a marathon runner. You, you can't afford to carry extra weight. You know, you're stripped down. You watch track and field athletes today. They're in the skinniest of the skivvies. You know, I want no extra weight, nothing that slows me down. Every weight, sin which clings so closely, so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. Think of Anquari again. We're running a marathon. It's not a sprint. It requires endurance. It's a long time. And as we do, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The picture here is Jesus, uh, some of the translations we'll talk about, he's the file leader. So if you think of the marathon, Jesus is the runner who finishes the course first. And so you've got your eyes on him. You're running your marathon also. It's the same course, essentially. But you can see the leader up ahead, and you're keeping your eyes focused on the leader, the one who crossed the line first, and he went to the award ceremony. He's there at the throne of God. That's the picture in Hebrews. That's our incentive. That's Jesus' example for us. So in the race of life and faith, we'll face many obstacles. All of us will. Nobody gets through life easily. I mean, the best, most blessed life has lots and lots of challenges. So we're going to be tempted to throw in the towel, take a break, say, maybe it's not worth it. Maybe I should go find a better thing, a better lifestyle, something along that line. And the reminder this morning is, is to finish the race of life well. So this is the 59th lesson. We're winding down, believe it or not. In the Heroes and Villains series this morning, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And guys, I confess, we're, we're looking at just the smidgen of his life because we're just, we're really using Paul. Sorry, Paul. We're using Paul as the lens by which to develop that theme about faithfulness means we finish well. And Paul finished well, and that's what comes up in the last epistle he wrote. And guys, I think this is particularly timely. This is true at any time for any Christian to say the, the marathon of your race of life and mine, it requires 
endurance. It requires a long-haul view, perseverance, holding on. But specifically, for a couple of other reasons, I think this is especially timely now, well-known Christians are falling away from Christ like ticks off a dog or ants off something being sprayed down. Just last week, I read another prominent Christian musician headed up a Christian group, said he doesn't believe in God anymore. These deconstruction stories of faith, they just follow one after another after another. So that if you were looking up at well-known Christian leaders that now say, I don't believe in Jesus and I don't believe in God and I think it's all a myth, your world could be rocked. We, we need to be reminded that this is the exception, not the rule. But also, a second reason why I think this is timely, we're warned that falling away from Christ and the faith increases as this age winds down. As we grow closer to the time of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus, the end of the age as we know it, Paul says in both of his letters to Timothy, there's going to be people falling away. It will be characteristic of the age before Jesus comes. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says in later times some will fall away from the faith. They don't endure. They don't finish well. They don't finish the race at all. They fall away. 2 Timothy 4.4 4 says many will turn away from following the truth. Here's the truth, and at one point I say, I believe it, I, I live for it, and now I say, it's not the truth, and I don't know what I was doing. I found a better truth. And then also, just last, you and I live in a world antagonistic to our faith. It's led by a very cunning adversary, someone much, much smarter than we are with a lot of experience in, in harming people of faith. And we have a sinful disposition that's always given. Guys, it never changes, does it? Your sinful disposition and mine, it's always there with us. So we need to be reminded as believers that we're on a marathon race. It's our life. And it requires a particular grip on truth and on Christ and an outlook like an athlete's outlook on I endure. I don't give up when the pain increases. I keep pushing through. That's really what this is about. Finishing well or finishing in faith or finishing faithfully includes at least these two things. You might add others up, but at the basic level for Christians, it includes at least these two things. The first is simply holding on to our profession of faith, which means the gospel. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that God the Son came to earth, incarnated, took on our humanity, lived perfectly, died sinlessly as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, 1 John 2, 2, that he rose bodily from the grave, that he sits at the right hand of the Father until he comes again to claim his own and rule this world. The gospel that we say, no, the gospel is true. The gospel defines us. The gospel defines faithfulness. The gospel defines finishing the race of our life well. That's one thing. But then also specifically for us, all of us are holding on to the person work of Christ, the gospel. But God's will for your life and mine, it's different. It looks differently. But there's some common elements. And specifically, Ephesians 2.10 and Philippians 2.13 is what I'm thinking about as the second means of finishing well or faithfully. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has ordained specific good works for you and I to live out. God has things for you to do. Faithfulness for you and me means doing those things God's equipped us and called us and given us to do. Philippians 2.13 says it's God who's at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. 
So finishing well or finishing in faith for you and I means not only holding on to the gospel, but it means continuing to be faithful to the people God's put me in relationship with, to the things God calls me to do, to the spheres of influence he has me in, that when I lay down my life, I've said, Lord, the things you've given me to do, this doesn't mean we never fail, by the way, right? We, we blow it. I'm not saying we never blow it. But that by and large, Lord, the things you've given me to do, that's what I've kept at. Junior, take out the trash. I took out the trash. You know, Junior, have this conversation. I have that conversation. So the gospel, finishing well, but also for us personally, what are those good works? What is God at work in us to will us to do for his good pleasure? We want to be faithful to the end to do those things as well. A timeline, Paul's life, which we're just going to talk about very briefly. This is strange, guys. What's happened to our PowerPoint? The scales is all wrong. Sorry, you won't be able to see any of that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this did not translate. So there would be a circle. If you look at your study sheet instead, you can see the timeline on there instead of that. Uh, Paul, his life story, as far as we're concerned, comes in right after Jesus' resurrection so his story starts in Acts 7. If you remember with uh, Stephen's story, he's there at Stephen's stoning. And best guess is he's executed under Nero in 67 AD. So that's the lifetime. And we're just going to come in at the very end of Paul's life because that's, that's where he's speaking about the thing that matters to us this morning. So when Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's at the end of his race and he knows it. He, death is not necessarily imminent, but it's around the corner. It's sooner than it is further away. So this is the last letter he writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he's, he's encouraging Timothy. If you go to the front part of that epistle, he's telling him, hey, stir up the flames, man. I'm, gonna, I'm checking out. I'm going to finish my race. You're still in the race, man. You've got to stir it up. You've got to work yourself up. You've got to get back in the race. But listen to what he says in chapter 4, and this is what I want to focus on for us. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul tells Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. Remember in the Jewish uh, sacrificial system, some of the offerings included wine being poured over part of the sacrifice. And Paul says, if my life is the cup, it's almost emptied. I'm right at the end. The dregs are going to be poured out of my life here anytime soon. In light of that, verse 7, he says, I have, so he's looking back, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So look at verse 7 again, just the phrases he used. These, these are athletic. This is Olympic game stuff. When he says, I fought the good fight, the, the term, the Greek term for fought is what we get the term agony or agonized from. He says, I've agonized, I've contended, I've competed like a wrestler on the mat. It's difficult and it requires all my exertion. I have fought, I've contended, I've agonized over finishing the course of my life well, over this fight of faith. And then he says, I finished the race. And this means that he's finishing the course that was set out for him. You know, if you run a marathon, you don't choose the 26.2 miles you're going to run. The course is set out for you. Jesus finished the course of his life, the course the Father set out for him. 
Paul says, I'm finishing the course that God set out for me. That the race course that God appointed for me, it's going to be cut short, it would appear to us, because Paul will suffer a martyr's death. But the course, Paul says, for me is the course I've run, God set it out, and I'm going to finish the race course he lined out for me. And then he says, and I've kept the faith, I've guarded, I've protected my faith and the content of the faith right up to this point, right up to the end of my life. So his death is assumed to be sometime soon. He doesn't expect to be released again. His public ministry years are over. He's going to join Jesus in his heavenly kingdom. In fact, he says in verse 18, the Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So he says, I have fought, I have finished, and I have kept. And that's the mentality we want to have. It's a fight. It's a course to be finished. It's a faith to be kept. I want to look at three ways in which Paul was challenged, three kinds of challenges in his life that he had to rise to, that he had to endure through. These would be true. Some of these would be true for us. You could look at Paul's life, or you might look at the lives of other saints, or you might look in Scripture, and you might pick some ones other than I'm looking at this morning. But I think some of these, at least, of the three are fairly universal. And the first is simply finishing the race alone. This is uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 16, and then I'll get to verse 17 in a moment. Paul says this, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. This is striking. When you read uh, Paul's letter, especially 2 Corinthians, which we'll look at in a minute, you realize this, this guy that we say, Paul's the giant of the faith. He's the apostle of apostles to the Gentiles. He's the guy that plants the churches. And yet at the end, near the end of his life, when he stands charged, remember that he's under charge from Jerusalem, and now he's going to be before Nero as the ultimate judge of his life, he's all alone. He's by himself. It's, he says, all have forsaken me. I'm there, and there's no, there's no other human person near me to encourage me. Paul is there, and he's all alone. And guys, if, most of us have faced this at some time. Loneliness can be one of the most challenging things to overcome, where you feel like, I'm doing what I know to do, life is hard, and there's no one next to me that knows what's going on. I feel like I'm all alone. In fact, you can feel that way in a crowd of people, can't you? No one knows what I'm going through. I feel like I'm all alone. No human can come alongside me and understand what I'm going through. It's one of the great challenges to faithfulness. It's just the sense of despair or depression because it's just me and I'm all alone. If you put this in the context of a marathon, it's kind of interesting. You know, if, you're, if you run a marathon, you're with a bunch of people. You're competing with each other, but guess what? You encourage each other on because you're all running for the same finish line. You know, in Aquari's race, he finishes the race alone and there's no one with him because they'd either dropped out or they finished an hour earlier. He's all by himself. And that's, again, it's one of the reasons why his completing his race is so outstanding. There's no one to help him. And he's battered and bruised all alone, but he chooses to finish anyway. And there will be times in your life when you feel like nobody knows what's going on. I'm in the depth of despair. I put a smile on my face. I tell other people I'm okay when anything but that is the truth. So loneliness, times when it feels like I have no human 
who knows what's going on. And to that, look at the next verse there in 2 Timothy 4. What do you do? What does Paul do? What should you and I do when you're at that point where you feel like I'm in it by myself? There's no one around who knows. There's no one to encourage me. Look at verse 17. Paul says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. I don't know specifically what this looked like. You know, in the story of Acts, you'll see an angel appear to Peter and tell him, you know, get up, get out of prison. I don't, I don't know what God's standing with Paul looked like. But he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. No human knew what was going on. No person was there to put their arm around me. But God showed up as only he can, and God strengthened me to keep going. When you or I are at the place where it feels like we're running the race alone, it's dark, the sun is set, everybody else has finished and gone home, it's just us, you can count absolutely on God being present with you. He will be with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. And he will be there to strengthen you as surely as he was with Paul. Listen to this briefly from Psalm 62, verse uh, six, 5 and 6. God alone, David says, my soul, wait in silence. My hope is from him. He only, ultimately, for any of us, is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Or you think of David's uh, experience in 2 Samuel. Uh, he and the boys had been off. They'd been with the Philistines. They were going to fight. They were sent home. They get home to Ziklag, and what's happened? All their family have been taken. They've been kidnapped. All their worldly possessions are gone. And David's not feeling the love from his soldiers. But what does the text say there? It says he strengthened himself in the Lord. And that's what we need to do. You know, a great way to do that is simply get on your knees and pray. So aloneness or loneliness, that sense of despair that comes in because I don't feel encouraged from others. They don't know or they can't know. I just feel like I'm by myself. God will come in as he did for Paul and strengthen us. Another thing Paul faced, and this is almost a catch-all, Paul faced ridiculous numbers and diversity of adversity or trials. I'm condensing a long list from Paul. This is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 33. He says, I've been in imprisonments, not once or twice, multiple times in prison. Beatings, near-death experiences, he says, I was whipped, lashes from the Jews, 39 lashes, not once, not twice, not three times, five different times. He says, I was stoned. That's in the book of Acts. I'm sure they assumed they had killed him, stoned to death. He said, I've been shipwrecked. I've been on frequent journeys with all the dangers that were attendant on journeys at that time in the world. He says, I've got enemies among both Jews and Gentiles. Sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, exposed in the cold. That would be bad enough, right? All the things he experiences to be faithful. But as if that weren't enough. God says, no, Paul, it's not enough. So I'm going to give you something else. I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. Because you've seen things, you know things by personal experience that are going to tempt you to be proud. And so I want to cut you off at the root on that. And so I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh. Lots of guesses on what that might be. We're not going to, get any, going to get into the guesses this morning. But simply to say, on top of all the external challenges, God says, oh, and by the way, here's another gift for you to keep you humble. What a challenge. 
Some of us are going to face hardships in life. And guys, life's not fair, and God doesn't say he's fair. He's just, he's merciful, he's compassionate, all those things. Fair, the way we use the term, is not a biblical term. Some of us will sail through life, not necessarily easily. Everyone has their pains. Um, Man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward, Job says. You can't go through life on this sin-cursed earth without trouble. But some of us will go through life relatively easily. And in comparison, some of us are going to go through life and it'll look more like Paul's experience. It will be one trial, one bit of adversity after another. And God's in the details. We don't line that out. The course we run is the course God sets for us. We don't choose that. That's, that's God's deal. Physical suffering, financial hardships, loss of friends or family, you name it. What did Paul do and what do we do when you're faced with adversity and maybe adversity after adversity, not one or two, but over a period of time? Listen to this from Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Paul says there, and this is also, remember, this is a prison epistle. This is written from prison, so this isn't pie in the sky. This is his experiences in prison when he writes this. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know how to get along with God when life's good, and I know how to how to live when it's less good. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, lots, or being hungry, having an abundance, or being in need. Verse 13 again, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's that singular insistence again that it's only Christ and Christ in us who's adequate to help us finish the race of life well. Christ in us. And the third is this, and uh, hopefully you don't face much of this in life, but you'll probably face some, and it's rejection. You know, you might say I'm in a lonely place on one hand, but I have lots of friends, people who would call me their friend, and I would say they're my friends. That's, That's one thing. But rejection's a different thing. Rejection is, I thought you were my friend, and now you tell me you're not. Rejection says, we had a relationship, and now we don't. That's different. This is 2 Corinthians. And guys, I don't have specific references on here. If you read chapters 10 10 and 11, uh, Paul's got a lot to say to the Corinthians. But when you read it, you realize how much he's trying to convince them that they should listen to him because they've rejected him. He talks about people that they consider super apostles. And these were, were, he actually says, uh, servants of Satan. They weren't even Christians but they'd been accepted by the Corinthian church because these guys looked the part. They they physically looked more attractive than Paul did. And they spoke well. And you remember in the Greek world, speaking well, philosophy, oratory, that was a big deal. Well, these guys looked the part. They weren't, but they looked the part. And in comparison, Paul looks pretty pathetic. And they say, these are our guys, Paul. You're not our guys. So throughout the epistle, he's defending his apostleship so that they'll listen to him, so they get what God wants for them. So he's rejected by the very ones he led to Christ. He started that church, and they say, you're not our guy. He's rejected by those who should have loved him, rejected by those who should have owned him, and in all likelihood, you and I are likely to be rejected too. Now, sometimes you'll blow it, and somebody's like, 
I'm taking a break from you. You know, we've been offensive. We've blown it. We've done something. And so maybe there's a break in fellowship there for a season. But what you'll find also is this. You can do everything faithfully as you understand to do it and still be rejected by others. That was Jesus' life. That's the life of the prophets throughout the Old Testament. That was Paul's experience. And if you're faithful to Christ, you'll probably find there will be times and places and there will be people who will reject you, not because you've done something wrong, but because you've been faithful, period. What do you do then? What do you do when you face rejection? And guys, the fear of man... The fear of rejection, it is basic to our fallenness and our fallen nature. Being being accepted, man, we crave it. We're made to because we're made to have fellowship. You know, and sin breaks that between God and us, but it's also broken in relationship to each other. It's never perfect. No matter how close a friend you have or your spouse, it's never perfect. But being rejected, it's a big fear. What do you do when you're rejected or you're simply facing the fear of, of rejection. Listen to this again from David. This is Psalm 103, verse 13. The song we opened with was in part from Psalm 103. David said, As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You know, when you do right, you've been faithful. You can count on, and you could count on this anyway, but when you've been rejected by others, your father has compassion on you. He comes up to you and he says, they're there. It's okay. We can do this. You're never without God. Or Paul in Romans 8, this was his experience as well. You remember when he winds down, and and by the way, you know, Romans 8 is glorious on one hand. You know, God's electing love and and God's called you out and he's going to conform you to the image of Christ. But then he gets in this crazy language. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. But he says, but, but even with that, in Christ we're more than conquerors. And he closes by saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing can, the rejection of one or multiple people in your life doesn't do a bit to isolate you from God, you from Christ. It's always there. It's constant, that relationship we have with him. Loneliness, adversity, rejection, throw in any of the things you might feel separately you've been challenged by. God is good for all of them. Christ and Christ in us is good for all of them. There's an interesting element to the life of Paul. You remember when we looked at the life of Stephen, we saw that very intentionally as Luke listed Stephen's life, you could see point-by-point comparisons with the life of Christ. And you see the same thing in the life of Paul. Jesus knew what it took to finish well, and that enduring life of Christ is in each of us. And by the way, since I haven't said this, let me repeat this. I've said this in multiple, multiple messages. When we talk this morning about finishing well, we're not talking about earning salvation. We're not talking about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not talking about religious practices. Folks who are born again through faith in Christ have the life of Christ within us. And so you read in Romans and you read in Galatians, what we're doing is, and what God's at work in us doing, is diminishing the old sinful life and enlarging the new life of Christ within us. So in all of this, when we're talking about faithfulness this morning, we're really talking about the life of Christ within us, the new life of Christ within us being more, and the old us being less. Christ knows how to finish the race well. 
And Christ's life is in you, and Christ's life is in me, and that's what we're aiming for. It's not performance-based religion. We want to be very careful about this. So listen to this from Hebrews 12. Again, back to the marathon and the race of life. And again, I'm condensing uh, phrases from verses 3 through 13. The writer says, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured. He hung on. He didn't give up. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Long race, don't grow weary, don't faint. Verse 7 It's for discipline. Most translations list this as discipline, which is fine. When we read it this morning, think of the word training instead. Training is a synonym. I'm not making this up. This is okay to say this out of the Greek, right? It's for training that you have to endure. You're in training lessons. You and the Lord, he's training you. Verse 11, for the moment, all training, discipline, training seems painful rather than pleasant. If you've ever participated in athletics, and you let's say you've had a lazy summer and you've just hung around and the fall comes and training starts, you know, when you start training again, your muscles don't like it. They hurt. You go to bed hurting, you wake up sore and stiff, you know, your body's not ready, so you go into a training regimen. Well, that's what he says goes on here for us, that God's training us to finish, not only to run, but to finish this life of faith well. And it's challenging at moments, like starting training, but it's what allows us to finish the race and finish well. He says, verse 12, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I love the fact, Aquari, I don't know where he got it, he dislocated his knee when he fell. He popped it back in, and then in the image you saw, he taped his leg together. So he could finish the race. Well, that's what he's saying here. If you fall down and you're injured or the training has been hard on you, he says, get up anyway and keep going. Now, what you'll see in the life of Paul, especially winding down here, is that just as Stephen reflected Christ's life in Acts 7, Paul reflects Christ's life winding down his life. And I'll give you a few examples here. I think all of these are on your study sheet, by the way. Uh, Jesus, in Luke 9.51, Luke says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's his death and resurrection, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke's gospel's a little different. Um, starts out, it's in Galilee primarily. Jesus' life is, is expressed in Galilee. And then through a lot of Luke, he's just winding his way down to Jerusalem. The whole thought is, he's on a journey. He's on a course taking him from the north, working his way down the marathon course to Jerusalem where he will cross his finish line. Paul to his friends in Acts 20, says this, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Jesus says, I got to get to Jerusalem. Paul says, I got to get to Jerusalem. There's some references there. I think you've got Acts 19, 21 and 20, verse 16 as well. So when he says this, Jesus how do his friends respond? This is Matthew 16. Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed on the third day raised. And what do the disciples say, his friends that are there to support and encourage him? Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. 
So Jesus says, I'm going where God's called me. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And I'm going to finish my race. And Peter says, don't do it. Paul at Caesarea, Acts 21, from verse 10 following. A prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. He says, takes Paul's belt. He binds his own feet and hands. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, when we heard this, now Luke is right, and Luke the author is there. When we heard this, we and the people there, what do we do? We say, okay, go, Paul, finish your race. No, we urged him not to go to Jerusalem. We say, Lord, don't, Paul, don't do it. Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the points continue briefly. They're both falsely accused of opposition to the law in the temple. Both Jesus and Paul are struck. They're slapped across the face as they speak to the Sanhedrin and the high priest. They both face multiple trials. And then last on our short list, John 19.30, Jesus from the cross says, it is finished. 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, I have finished the race of my life. Just as Stephen was an indication that Jesus is still on earth in his people, you see the same thing here in Paul. Jesus' life goes on on the earth in his people in the church. He's still there. And Paul has all these ties right back to Jesus. Just like Jesus was back there, here he is still again today. you got this mirror image of Paul's life with Jesus. And they're both finishing well. They're both finishing the race of their life in faith. So when's the race over? When's your race and mine over? You, you could say this a couple different ways. I'm saying it this way. It's over when we see Christ. Your race, your life, your faithfulness ends only when you see Christ. Listen to this from 2 Timothy again, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, I fought, I have finished, I've kept. He said, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. I'm taking a little bit of liberty with this text, but Paul's connecting here, finishing his race with this award ceremony that will occur when Jesus appears. Now, I think ultimately he's thinking about the second coming. Think of passages like Matthew 25, and, and Jesus rewards or awards people things based on faithfulness. Just like David, Jesus is a king in exile. We're here on earth working in his name, and there's going to be a day when he's ruling over the earth, and when he does, he rewards those who served him during his exile. And Paul says, I'm going to get to the winner's stand when I finish my race, and so will everyone else who has loved his appearing. Friends, for Paul, Paul was executed, he died, and Jesus, if you will, appeared to Paul when he died. Paul went into Jesus' presence. For you and me, some of us in this room, the appearing of Jesus for us may be when Jesus shouts and the archangel yells and the trumpet blasts and we're caught up to meet Christ in the air. That might be the appearing of Jesus for us. And we say, well, man, that race is over. Yeah, that'd be a good way to go out, wouldn't it? Don't even finish the end of life. We just were caught up. That'd be good. But for most of us, probably, maybe, hard to say, most of the saints through history at least, uh, the finish line was death, wasn't it? It was breathing the last, soul leaves body, and joins Christ in heaven. 
So we want to understand that the race is on for us until we see Christ. You can't stop early. We don't quit. We don't sit down. We keep going until we see Christ. So what does finishing well for you or for me look like? Wow, we got to do something about this next time, guys. Um, yeah, this is on your study sheet, so I hope you have that. What does finishing well require? You know, you got the language from Paul. You've also got it in Hebrews. To finish well, you got to stay in the race. You've got to endure. You know, you may assume, man, if the Lord doesn't call, I'm young, and I'm probably got decades before my race is finished. But that means you got a lot of things to endure. So we've got to endure through the race to get to the finish line, to cross the finish line in faith. What does that look like and what does that require? So what are my difficulties today? What am I challenged with? This would be the big thing. And what has God said about that? You know, when we look at Paul's challenges, we then quote Scripture to say, what could Paul rely on? Well, Christ showed up and Christ strengthened me. I'm never alone. I've got the promises of God. You know, for sure, we ought to be meeting with the Lord in prayer. Guys, there's, there is relief to be found, right? Just getting on your knees and just praying. You'll be relieved in ways nothing else and no one else can relieve you. you. You will feel better. Your heart will be relieved of a weight or a burden just because you, you do that simple song, you just take it to the Lord in prayer. But also Scripture, if we don't know what God has said, if we don't know the promises of God that we have in his word, how do we do what Paul did? How do we do what David? How do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord if we don't know the promises and the commitments we have from God if we don't know what God has said? So I will quote my daughter, we should read our Bibles. We should read our Bibles so we know what God has promised us. Jesus is in us. Think of Colossians 1. Christ is in us. He's our hope of glory. But Christ is in us. He's our hope of enduring grace, persevering grace, life-finishing grace. Christ is in us. So again, be clear, we're not talking about pulling ourselves up the boot from the bootstraps. Lord, you be my strength. Lord, you encourage me. Lord, you help me finish the life of faith well. And guys, when we say this, I want to point out, Finishing well assumes we've started a life of faith. If you haven't trusted in Christ, there is no race. You you just stand under the righteous judgment of God. There is no race. There is no race course. You can be religious. You can practice all kinds of morality. And you still won't see Jesus giving you awards. He'll be on a great white throne. And he'll be telling you what your punishment is because you died without him. He'll be your judge if he's not your savior. Any day's a good day to be saved. And all we're talking about is, Jesus, save me. You know, you're the thief on the cross. Save me. We look to Christ in faith. That's it. We bring nothing but our sin, and Jesus saves us. And that begins the race for us. Guys, if we haven't begun the race, the issue is beginning the race, not finishing. So if you don't know Christ as your savior, that's the thing. Jesus Save me a sinner, and he will. He says that no one who comes to him will he cast out. Come to Christ, he'll save you. John Aquari, you know, he was a young guy when he ran that race. His marathon race was over. The Olympic competition was over, but his life wasn't over. You know, what did he do? You know what he did? Now, he's gained a few pounds, hasn't he? 
He's not the skinny marathon runner that he was. You know, by the way, uh, he would have competed for the gold. He was the top class level participant in that race. He was remarkable. But he went home, and you know what he did? He went back to farming. He was a farmer in Tanzania. He went back to his wife. He went back to raising his six children, which is to say the Olympics were over, but his race wasn't over, right? He, he went back, and he's been awarded. He's been recognized at different times. People have him come to Olympic Games. He carried the torch in one of the Olympics. I can't remember which, which one, you know, honored this guy who was such a memorable element of the 68 Olympics. But he got back into life. He, he finished the marathon, but he's been working at finishing his life as well. And that's where we want to go. The race of life, God help us to live it. And remember, it is Christ, right? With all the encouragement to be faithful, it's we can be faithful because Christ is in us, because Christ has hold of us and we have hold of him, okay? Father, we thank you that Christ is ours and that we are his. Uh, Father, I always think of Psalm 73. It's not that we have such a strong hold on your hand. It's that your hand is holding us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you finished Salvation is complete. You've gifted us eternal life, and you've gifted us and equipped us for good works. Lord, would you help each person here today? Would you help us hold on to the faith, to Christ, to his person and his work? And would you help us to finish this race of life well in faith, faithfully? In Jesus' name, amen.